we're in the second week of our series in the book of Jude. Uh, if you are just joining us this week, if you missed the first week, let's do a quick recap. Uh, Jude, he is the half-brother of Jesus, and he wrote this letter to remind the early church that they need to contend for their faith. That is the heartbeat of this letter. That's what drives this letter, contend for the faith that was once delivered to all the saints the saints. Uh, contend for the faith amidst a world that presses down against your faith, amidst communities that can press against your faith. Contend for the faith within your own soul. Because there's all these sort of pressures that challenge us to ask the question, is our faith really worth it? Does our faith really make a difference? Does it matter at all? Last week, we looked at Jude verses 1 through 4, and we saw unequivocally Jude says, yes, Faith matters. Faith is worth it because Jesus is the one who contends for us. Jesus is the one who pursues us and keeps us. And, and our faith matters because our faith has a great deal to do with who we are. Our faith has a great deal to say about our own identities. We can be ungodly or we can be beloved. These are the terms that, that Jude uses in his letter, and he reminds us we don't discover who we are by looking to one group and defining ourselves. You don't look to the ungodly and deduce, oh, I must be beloved, or vice versa. Actually, the only way you find out who you truly are is in relation to God. If we reject God and we choose ourselves, Jude says we're ungodly. More simply, it's just you're not God-like. But if you respond to Jesus in faith, Jude says you're beloved. You're called, you're loved by God the Father, you're kept by and for Jesus. Today, as we get into verses 5 through 19, which is the bulk of this letter, uh, we will see that Jude has a lot more to say about the ungodly still. Especially what happens when we choose to live for ourselves and we reject God. And I want to give you a heads up, these aren't easy verses. These are heavy verses and they deal with very serious issues. They're about condemnation. They're about the eternal ramifications for not responding to Jesus in faith. So before I say anything else, if you're a guest with us this morning or you've been here a few times and you're still trying to figure out, is this Jesus guy really who he claims to be? I want you to know a few things. I get that this passage is difficult. And I get that it can seem like we are just categorizing you and sweeping you into the corner as the ungodly in our midst. I want you to know we're not concerned with labeling you or defining you negatively. Uh, we're far more concerned as a community with pointing, to you, pointing you to the love of God uh, displayed in Jesus. But in order to do that, we have to take an honest assessment of ourselves. And in order to do that, we have to read scripture on its own terms. So this morning, as we dig into Jude verses uh, 5 through 19, I want to look at three things. The way of the ungodly, the end of of the ungodly, and the response of the beloved. So open your Bibles with me to Jude, starting in verse 5. Jude writes, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. I don't have time to unpack that, but essentially Jude is attributing the work of God himself to Jesus, the Exodus. God is the one who saved, and now it's being revealed that it was really Jesus acting. Anyways, and the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he's kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, 
Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example of undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. If I were to say to you, Messier, Curry, and Gretzky, maybe you immediately know these names and you know what ties them together. Hockey. But you know there's something more that ties them together. Uh, They were the only good Oilers team in the history of hockey. Uh, If I said uh, Gaston, Jafar, and Scar, uh, most of you, you'd be able to name the stories for these people. You know, the Beauty and the Beast, uh, Aladdin, and the Lion King. And you know, generally, it's Disney that ties them together. But more specifically, they're all the villains. If you were in the early church and you heard Egypt, the rebellion of the angel, Sodom and Gomorrah. You would immediately know these stories and you would know what ties them together. It would be obvious. But for many of us, these stories aren't our framework. What ties them together isn't as obvious. So let's look at them. After the exodus in Egypt, the very people that God saved turned on God. They started worshiping other gods. They they grumbled to the point of saying, we wish you had left us in Egypt in slavery. It would have been better to die there with the meat and the bread that we could have had. The angels, they, uh, they wanted more authority that had been given to them. So they abandoned their position with God. They rejected God. The ancient city of Sodom and Gomorrah. They wanted to indulge in radical sexual expression. And, and so they rejected God. The common thread weaving these stories together is the rejection of God's authority. Rejecting God's authority so that you can live however it is that you want to live. So Jude takes these stories, stories that the the early church would have already known, and he weaves them together, these stories of antagonists in in the scriptures. And then he weaves them into the issues at hand in their context. And he does this a few times in the letter. He takes stories they would know, and he shows how they still speak into their context today. Yet in like manner, Jude says in verse 8, these people, which he means the ungodly, also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. The people Jude is concerned about are the people who don't allow Jesus to be their Lord and Master. Their true allegiance is to themselves. They want what they want when they want it. And we dealt with this last week and we're going to deal with it some more because when people reject God's authority, it's always because of ulterior motives. Well, what's one of their motives? Jude says, they want to defile the flesh. What? You could translate as they want to pollute their own bodies. And this is an allusion to Sodom and Gomorrah, which Jude has already kind of put in everybody's minds. Gomorrah is, throughout the scriptures, a symbol of sexual immorality and the costs of that. It was a city of radical, unbridled sexual expression. It probably, their attitude went something like this. I can have sex with whoever I want, with as many people as I want, in whatever form I want. And the ungodly in Jude's day, uh, they want no bounds in their sexual lives. But in order to do this, they must reject God's authority because God does place bounds on our sexual lives. So instead, these people, they rely upon their dreams, which Jude means their own imaginings. 
They infuse themselves with a sense of authority so they can define what is acceptable. And again, this makes them not godlike. They just don't want God's ways. And it really doesn't take much of an imagination to see how this still speaks into our context today. We are a sexually liberated, free, and expressive city. But in order to justify having sex with a stranger, downloading Tinder, you know, cheating on your spouse, having sex with a minor, masturbating to porn, participating in porn, sleeping with escorts or prostitutes, or having sex that deviates in any way from the, the vision that God has that sex is a beautiful thing for marriage. You have to become your own authority. You have to say the Bible is archaic and backwards when it comes to sex. It just makes people think that sex is dirty. Neither of these things are true, but do you see what you've actually done? You've become the authority. You're declaring what is right and wrong. And you're twisting God's vision of a good and glorious thing. You've rejected his authority because you must in order to justify doing the things that you want to go and do. And in Jude's day, this is exactly what the ungodly are doing. They're indulging in radical, unbridled sexual expression. But rejecting God's authority has more implications still. Uh, look at verses 8 through 10. They blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people, the ungodly, blaspheme all they do not understand. And they're destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Uh, Jude here is bringing in a story that we don't find in our scriptures. It's actually from another uh, Hebraic writing. And in this story, the archangel Michael, he won't contend with the devil. He won't presume to have more authority than he has. He knows his place. And so he doesn't say, go away, devil. He says, the Lord rebuke you. He recognizes God as his ultimate authority. And, and so to act with more authority than you actually have is to blaspheme. As the Arch archangel Michael, he won't dare to do that because it's a blasphemous judgment. So the ungodly in Jude's context. They're blaspheming because they believe they have a greater authority than they really have. They make pronouncements uh, that they have no right to make. They act on instinct, not on God's word and wisdom. And Jude says, by doing this over and over, they're more like unreasoning animals. They're being dehumanized in the process. You have to understand that when you see something in God's word that you don't like, whether it's what God has to say about money or sex or you name it. When you say, well, that doesn't apply to me. I don't like it. I don't think the scriptures are right here. I can come up with better ethics than God can come up with. It's a form of blasphemy. You're acting with more authority than you actually have. You're making uh, pronouncements and, you, and rewrites over God's revealed word. The issues don't stop with sexual immorality and blasphemy. Look at verse 11. Woe to them. They're cursed. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. Again, we have three more stories brought in and Jude weaves these again into the present context. What ties them together? 
Well, Cain, he killed his brother for a blessing. Balaam uh, tried to curse and kill God's people for their land and for, for incentives. And Korah tried to rise up against the Lord's appointed leader to become a self-appointed leader. What ties them together is the motivation of selfish gain. It's greed. The ungodly in Jude's context, they only care about what they can procure, what they can add to their wealth, and, and they don't care if it's to the detriment of others. And in our culture, we get so messed up about money. We make unfathomable sacrifices to gain it. There's an altar for money, and on it we sacrifice our time, time with our family and our children, time with our friends, time with our community. On it, we'll sacrifice our health. No time to go to the gym. No time to do what really uh, is required to care for our souls. And when we get the money that we want, more often than not, we just indulge in it. It's for us. And when we don't have the money that we want, we often make compromises. The compromises might be small and seem trivial, but they're still compromises. Whether it's downloading movies and, and music off the internet without paying for them. You know, just lying a little bit on your tax returns. You know, uh, uh, misrepresenting your insurance claims. And under all, all of this, uh, it, it shows that we don't really think our money is from the hand of God. Because we worked for it. We earned it. We put in the hard effort. And so we get to use it however we want. And when we see that God asks us to give generously and sacrificially, we hold back. We keep it to ourselves. Because on the one hand, yeah, we got bills to pay. But on the other hand, you want to be able to indulge and buy whatever it is that you want, whether it's the next gadget, the meal out, or the vacation. But what's clear is behind these sort of things is a rejection of God's authority. God doesn't have authority over the realm of your finances. That's not his. That's off, to off topic. That's off the books. God can have these areas. But the most sweeping issue about the way of the ungodly in verse is verses 12 through 13. Jude says, These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved, Forever. Aside from the intensity, Jude's quite the poet, don't you think? I mean, this is poetic language. Uh, it's helpful to know the early church, they referred to their gatherings as love feasts. Uh, you know, that could catch on again. It might be a better invite than like, hey, you want to come to church? Go invite someone to come to a love feast. Uh, that might get a little weird in Vancouver, but uh, at their gatherings, at these love feasts, uh, the early church would gather to hear the word, to encourage one another, share a meal, participate in the Eucharist. Uh, and Jude says, they're unaware of hidden reefs. They're unaware of hidden reefs in their midst. The ungodly have crept into their community. They are uh, hidden reefs that risk shipwrecking the whole community. If they're not identified, the community will crash into them and be broken apart. Disorder will ensue, division will happen, and the community will sink. Part of the overarching problem of the ungodly that Jude's talking about is that some of them are actually teachers in the community. 
They're shepherds feeding themselves. These are people who come into the community and teach, but they don't actually rely upon God's word. They're not teaching in accordance with the testimony passed on from the apostles. They, they rely on their own instincts. And as a result, they, re, they lead people astray. They distort grace into sensuality. We looked at that last week. They, and they distort the gospel in people's lives. You see, shepherds, they're supposed to be uh, caring about the flock. They're supposed to lay down their lives like the good shepherd did for his sheep. But these shepherds, all they care about are themselves and their own gain. And the problem is that they're uh, waterless clouds, they're fruitless trees, they're wandering stars. You know, the, the, the rain from clouds is supposed to give sustenance to the earth, but these ungodly teachers, they give you no sustenance. You might like what they have to say, but it has no depth. They're uh, fruitless trees. You're supposed to be nourished by a tree. But this this group of ungodly teachers, they they offer you nothing, no nourishment. They're wandering stars. Stars were the ancient version of the GPS. They're going to take you in all sorts of directions, but you need one direction. Can I get one direction? No? Okay. I had to look up a song. I don't even know any of the songs, but I'm not going to sing it to you. If the beloved then, if the beloved do not learn how to identify the ungodly, if they don't learn how to respond to their presence, they will be sunk by these hidden reefs. They'll be destroyed and led astray from God's peace, mercy, and love. When you dwell in these stories that Jude weaves beautifully together, You get this very vivid picture. This group of people, the ungodly in their day, they reject Jesus as their Lord and Master. They want what they want when they want it. They engage in radical sexual expression. They blaspheme. They're greedy. They exist for themselves and they drag other people down with them. And I don't know about you, but this just sounds like a description of the ethos of our city. You might not say it in these terms. But often this is just our default mode of existing. But Jude wants us to remember that as we contend for our faith, as we contend for our faith, the way of the ungodly, it has an end. It it might have its allure. It might be uh, satisfying for a time, but it has an end. There's a present end and there's an ultimate end. Let's look at the present end. Verse 10 again. Jude says, they, the ungodly, are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Maybe you're here in this room and you're you're kind of looking around. It's a little strange, a bunch of people listening to an ancient book, talking about the ungodly. Um, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I want you to understand. God is going to let you live however you want to live. You can do whatever you want to do but you're going to reap what you sow. And there will be consequences. You see, humanity's instinctive reasoning and knowledge, it doesn't lead to life and flourishing. Sure, you can rationalize living however it is that you're rationalizing living. You can come up with the reasons of why you do it. But these things will inevitably destroy you. They'll always take more from you than what they give to you. And when we live by our own desires and our own whims, we do so because we think we're going to find contentment. 
we think we're going to find satisfaction. We live by these mottos, you know, just being true to yourself is the only thing that matters. You need to do whatever it is that will make you happy. And if you do whatever that is, then you'll arrive. This is one of the greatest lies that our culture tells. The outcome of living for ourselves is deep dissatisfaction. Look at verses 16 and verse 19. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. You might be indulging in what the world has to offer you. Big things, you know, big ways. Some of the ways we talked about, or it might be smaller things. But you know deep down, you're living for yourself. And when someone asks you, how's it going? It's, ah, oh, it's good. You promote the story. This is all going really well for me. But beneath the surface, in your heart of hearts, dare I say in your soul, when you have a moment alone, just by yourself, or the morning after, what do you hear when you have that moment of clarity? Grumbling. The grumble of discontentment. The, the foam of your own shame, as Jude puts it. A divisive life. You know, betrayals or shallow relationships or relationships that just can't stay together or relationships that are together but they just don't work. Money that comes and goes. Because, you, you see, when you settle for what can be observed materially, when you settle for uh, what can be indulged in, you're going to be devoid of the spirit. You're not going to find contentment. Because we can't actually fulfill our own souls because our souls are not our own, but God's. The way of living for ourselves, the way of being not God-like, ends in discontentment and self-destruction. And maybe you're experiencing that right now. That is your reality right now. Maybe it's not. But it'll come. It will come. The risk is that your reasoning might become so distorted that you won't even be able to identify it. And that terrifies me because I've been there. I've indulged in these things. These were my ultimate aims. They left me grumbling, discontent, blind to the fact that I kept going back and back again to the things that give me no life. And while there's a present end for living for yourself and rejecting God, there's an ultimate end. If we look at this whole passage uh, together, you know, verses 9 through 15, there's an overwhelming picture that emerges. God will come in judgment. The ungodly will be destroyed. They will undergo eternal punishment. The gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them forever. The ungodly's ultimate end is this, the eternal separation from God, utter darkness forever. And I say that with no satisfaction. I say that with heartache. I say that realizing that I'm speaking of many of my own family. I have no desire to see anybody end up in this hell. But this is the ultimate end. 
hell. We don't like to talk about hell anymore, uh, but we have to. And to do this, we need to move beyond images of devils and pitchforks or Dante's inferno. We also need to come to grips with the fact that Jesus says more about hell than Daniel, Isaiah, Paul, John, or Peter put together. Listen to what Jesus said to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 22, verses 10 through 16. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Jesus wants us to know about these things. The ungodly will remain eternally outside the presence of God. For all eternity, they will be left in their self-destructive patterns. Let the evil still be evil. Let the ungodly still be ungodly. They'll be left in their self-destructive patterns in the gloom of utter darkness. For many of us, Christian or otherwise, the idea of eternal punishment is just offensive and implausible. It seems unfair that infinite punishment would be dealt out for for finite mistakes and sins. And excluding a few extreme examples, no, no one knows anybody bad enough to deserve hell. Not even ourselves, definitely not ourselves. Well, you know, we're going to answer those questions in more detail. We're offering an equip and build on this topic in March. Um, But I also want you to know that Tim Keller answers this question way better than I can in an article called The Importance of Hell. And here's the gist of what Keller has to say. Uh, Scripture tells us that uh, people only get in the afterlife what they've most wanted here and now. Either to have God as their Lord and Master or to be their own Lord and Masters. And scripture tells us that that hell is a natural uh, consequence. Even now, it's clear that when you live for yourself, it can make you miserable. It can make you blind. You know, the more self-centered you are, self-absorbed, self-pitying, the more breakdowns occur, whether it's relationally, psychologically, even physically. And you go into a deeper sense of denial about the source of your problems. On the other hand, someone who decides to center their lives around the gospel, to place their faith in Jesus, you can see um, that they can move towards increasing joy and wholeness. Here and now, we can see these two trajectories. But if, as the Bible teaches, that our souls will go on forever, then imagine where these two kinds of souls will be in a billion years. Hell is simply one's freely chosen path going on forever. 
We wanted to get away from God, and God in his infinite mercy and justice sends us where we wanted to go. C.S. Lewis, uh, he helps illustrate this brilliantly. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you're still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself, going on forever like a machine. It's not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there's something growing, which will be hell, unless it's nipped in the bud. Hell, then, is the present end of the ungodly, growing unrelentingly and becoming their ultimate end. The discontentment, the grumbling, the gossiping, the blaspheming, the selfishness, you name it, it will increase and increase and increase and increase and increase until it becomes their sole reality and they can no longer distinguish themselves from it. When we look at this, this whole picture, how is the community of the beloved supposed to respond Well, they're not supposed to be taken by surprise, and neither are we. You know, don't uh, start freaking out and analyzing everyone beside you like, oh, man, am I sitting next to the ungodly? They're all around me. Like, this isn't uh, supposed to incite paranoia. But like I said last week, part of contending for our faith is remembering the context of our faith. Jude writes in verses 17 and 18, you must remember, beloved, The predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Essentially, this is your reality. Remember that. You were told about this. It shouldn't take you by surprise. So remember and recognize the risks and dangers of living this way. But also see that this is already in your midst. And recognize the risks and dangers that uh, this can impose upon your community. But that doesn't necessarily answer uh, how the beloved should respond to the ungodly. What do you think the beloved should do with the ungodly? When you read this vivid picture in Jude, how should we respond to this group of people? Don't you initially think, get away from them. Excommunicate them. Drive them out of your community before they destroy you from the inside out. But that's not the advice that Jude gives. Jude doesn't want us to get up on our high horses, peering down our holier-than-thou noses at other people. Scripture never gives precedent for that. Jude says in verse 22 that we're to have mercy on those who doubt. But the word doubt there is the same as grumble. He's actually saying have mercy on the ungodly. Part of mercy and love being multiplied in our lives is responding to uh, the not God-like with mercy. And next week, we're going to look at what that looks like practically. But for now, I want to ask, why should the beloved respond to the ungodly with mercy? Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, While we were weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We have mercy on the ungodly because Christ, 
as mercy for the ungodly. Jesus went to the cross for the ungodly so that the ungodly could become the beloved. We have mercy on the ungodly because none of us are inherently the beloved. What every single person in this room shares in common is that we are all ungodly. The beloved are simply those who have recognized that reality and turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, hoping and trusting in the forgiveness of their sins because of what he accomplished on the cross. It's only through what Jesus accomplished on the cross and through his resurrection uh, that we can receive forgiveness and become beloved. And so we can't separate ourselves from the ungodly because that's who Jesus died for. And we shouldn't be surprised to find ungodly people in our midst because that's who needs the gospel. And I hate to break it, you, break it to you, but you shouldn't be surprised if you find ungodliness in your own heart, even as the beloved. Because we never outgrow our need for the gospel. Let me end with this. We will never begin to understand the depths of what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross unless we come to grips with the eternal punishment that we deserve. On the cross, Jesus, uh, his body was being destroyed in the worst possible way. But that was merely a scratch compared to what was happening to his soul. When he cried out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? He was experiencing hell itself. Think about it. If our debt for sin is so great that outside of Jesus it is never paid off, even in a hell that stretches out for eternity, then what are we to conclude uh, from the fact that Jesus said the payment was finished after only three hours on the cross? Finished. We learn that what he felt on the cross was far worse and deeper than all of our deserved hells put together. Jesus experienced hell so that you don't have to. That's how great his love is for you. But if you reject him, he'll give you what you want. And your hell will stretch out for all eternity.